And so what I want to do in this last lesson is to talk about impassibility and reality. And as I described yesterday, what I mean by this is how impassibility impacts us in our everyday life, how it comes to intersect with the, the life that we live uh, day in and day out, our own personal experiences and things like that. The doctrine of divine impassibility, in fact, all theology about uh, theology proper, that is theology about God himself, all of it is eminently and extremely practical because it's the God we worship, the God we love, the God that we serve. And uh, impassibility is especially so, especially so because it deals with the way that we uh, ground our trust in God and the way that we preach the gospel to the unbelieving, to the nations. So think about with me about two things. First, we're going to talk about personal applications. Personal applications of the doctrine of divine impassibility to you, to you yourself. And then we'll look at pastoral implications. That's where, really where we talk about how this affects our preaching of the gospel and our shepherding of the people of God. Personal applications and pastoral implications. So relative or regarding to uh, regarding personal applications, everything depends on a foundation. Everything depends on a foundation. If you're on a bridge, my wife gets very scared going over bridges, especially tall ones, but if you're on a bridge, you're trusting that the concrete or wood underneath your feet or your car are going to hold you up. And you're trusting the support columns beneath the top layer, the bridge itself, and then you're trusting the support columns. And you're trusting the ground that those support columns have been sunk into. And you're trusting that all of these foundations, the ground, the support columns, and the bridge itself, are going to hold you up as you cross that bridge. You're trusting in the foundation of the foundation of the foundation, essentially. And so everything has a foundation. And the problem is, if you don't have a good foundation, it all comes apart. If you took a large and well-constructed bridge, and you took it and put it over the Marianas Trench in the Pacific Ocean, and you dropped the bridge... However wonderful that bridge is, it would just fall in so deep into the ocean it wouldn't help anyone. The foundation is not sufficient for it. So also, if you took a bridge and you put it into a, a mucky, muddy swamp, the, the foundations, however strong they are in terms of the columns and the bridge itself, would just sink and probably be uneven and maybe even fall over and break. It would not be a sufficient foundation to hold up that bridge. So then what we need as believers, what we need as you and me every single day, <clears throat> is to have a foundation so foundational that there is nothing in heaven or earth, past, present, or future, that can move, remove, or shake it. You need the foundation that has no foundation. The foundation that is a foundation in and of itself. So where does the Bible take us? in our times of discouragement and despair, trials and tribulations. The Bible points, to, uh, points us to the unchanging perfections of God as the foundation of our persevering trust in God's promises, which you can see in your outlines. The unchanging perfections of God are the foundation of your persevering trust in God's promises. Things are looking dark. Things are looking bleak. Things are very difficult. You're suffering in some way or another. You're going through hard times. How can I perseveringly trust? How can I push forward trusting in God's promises in this darkness and in this trial? The scriptures tell us 
Because God does not change. Because his love is unswerving. His love is perfectly faithful. His love is unchangeable. It is impassable love. Think about the Israelites in captivity in Egypt. For a few hundred years, they're in Egypt. And after Joseph dies, the new Pharaoh comes in, who doesn't know Joseph is not... Things are different under the new Pharaoh. He enslaves the Israelites. And he treats them brutally. Absolutely brutally. In fact, the Israelites are so oppressed, so weighed down, so controlled and dominated by the Pharaoh and the Egyptians that their firstborn male children are being slaughtered. Is there any situation more helpless than when the authorities over you are taking your own children and killing them and you can't stop them? Can you feel any more helpless than that? Is there anything really worse? Is there any state of subjugation more complete than when your little ones are being taken from you and murdered? How in the world can Moses take a message to those people? How in the world can you take a message to those people and expect them to believe that a God can deliver them from such complete oppression? Well, what does God say to Moses? This is a passage we've already read. This is the I am that I am passage. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the ones who are under this intense suppression and oppression, and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? How does God in some ways introduce himself to his people who are in intense and extreme oppression and affliction? God said to Moses, I am who I am, or I am that I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So the Lord presents himself to his people as I am that I am. That is the way that he sends hope and confidence and trust to a people whose male children are being slaughtered. Why would they trust in that? Because of the name. I am that I am. My being does not depend on any other. I am one who is so powerful, so perfect, so independent of creation that you can trust that I can deliver you from these Egyptians. He gives them his mighty name related to being in order to cause them to perseveringly try to get away from the Egyptians, trusting that God will give them the victory as they do so. He gives them a sure and firm foundation for their trust, and not just a trust in their minds, but something for them to act upon and to live out in their daily lives, a persevering trust. And brothers and sisters, when God promises to us in the New Covenant that he will remember our sins no more, that he will cover our transgressions, He means it. He means it. He promises it to us. This is something we'll talk about on the Lord's Day, God willing, when we look at Malachi chapter 3. God's promises come to us from God, from the God who is I am that I am, from the God who is unchanging, from the God who is impassable. When we forgive others, when you forgive your spouse or your children, it's likely that you mean it when you say it and that their sin towards you in that moment fades from memory quite a bit as you forgive them. But down the road, if that person repeats the offense or does something similar, 
depending on your emotional, emotional, mental, and physical state at that time, you may drag up from the past those previous sins and parade them before the person. In other words, what your intentions and feelings may have been at one point, I sincerely forgive you, may completely change at another point. Where you said you forgave that person back then, now you're bringing up those things in the, in the future or in the present relative to the past. In other words, your love can be provoked, it can be suppressed. Your forgiveness at one point can in some ways be revoked. I'm not condoning that. I'm just saying that's the way that we are as creatures. Our promises are not very strong and sure because we're not very strong and sure. Our ability to fulfill our commitments and promises is compromised by all sorts of things, not just ourselves. But when God makes a promise to us, when God covenants something with us, all of the perfections of his nature and being are engaged to keep that promise and ensure its completion. Even the best relationship between two creatures is a creaturely relationship. But with God, we're not dealing with a creature. We're dealing with I am that I am. And because he does not change, therefore we are not consumed. Malachi 3.6 And so if God declares to us that our sins are forgiven, they are forgiven. And no sinfulness on our part will cause God to have an emotional reaction to us. Again? You? Really? Again? After all that I've done for you? Really? You? Again? If that were our God, would you go to him? No. When our hearts condemn us, 1 John chapter 3, God is greater than our hearts. He knows all things. What does God know that our hearts often fail to realize? That he has promised us forgiveness of sins. Think about the way that we toss and turn as creatures and the constancy of God, his unchangeableness that becomes our foundation. We can say with Jeremiah, the weeping prophet in Lamentations 3, verses 21 to 24, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. That's persevering trust. Where the, where, not the psalmist, Jeremiah knows that every day he can wake up and the Lord's mercies are new. They're the exact same as they were yesterday because his, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are never ending. They never come to an end. That is a foundation with no foundation. The foundation of all foundations, God himself and the perfection of his being and his character. The Psalms teach us to think this way, to act this way, to discipline our emotional life this way. In other words, to sanctify our affections in this way. Psalm 73 is a very well-known psalm in which the the psalmist envies the wicked. He sees the wicked prospering. He sees them happy. He sees all, from his perspective, he sees good in wickedness and he feels drawn towards it. And he says, I've served the Lord in vain. Why have I bothered to try to be righteous when the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? Well, what is the conclusion? How does he come to his senses? Psalm 73, verses 22 to 26. The psalmist eventually concludes, I was brutish and ignorant. He says, I was like an animal. I was like a beast toward you, are his words. Nevertheless, 
I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. The object of his his affections is God. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So the psalmist confronted by the complexities of life, is confused. And we have those moments just like him. But what corrects him is the unchangeableness, the constancy of God's perfection and character. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and portion forever. This makes John's words all the sweeter when he says in 1 John 4, verse 16, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. We have come to know and believe the love that God God has for us. And then he says, God is love. And I hope that in these lessons, we, you and I, have come to know better the love that God has for us, because God is love. Love. Now, impassibility, as we've seen, refers to so much more than just love. But love is the perfect example of why this doctrine is so practical. His impassable love is that foundation under all foundations that we need, brothers and sisters, to persevere with a trusting perseverance or a persevering trust in all of the trials and afflictions of our lives. Now, I've avoided in all of these lessons so far, reading long quotes to you in these lessons. But there are a few quotes that I'd love to read to you because they're just so good from theologians of the past. One is a man named John Preston. And John Preston said this, If God be such a simple, first, pure, and absolute being, then hence you may see, if that's the foundation, then hence you may see this, what a stable foundation our faith has to rest upon. We are built upon the lowest foundation in all the world that is upon the first, most absolute and simple and pure and entire being. When he says the lowest foundation, he means there's nothing beneath it, the foundation of all foundations. Which is, I say, he says, the lowest foundation that depends upon no other but all upon it. It depends on nothing, but everything depends depends upon it. And this is the happy condition of all Christians and of them alone. Our foundation is is God, and there's nothing beneath it. He says, this is our happy condition. Next, from Edward Lee. He says, the attributes of God are everlasting, constant, and unchangeable, forever in him at one time as well as another. That's what we've studied in our previous lesson. And then he says, this may minister comfort to God's people. God's attributes are not mutable accidents, they're not qualities that are added to God, but his very essence His love and mercy are like himself, infinite, immutable, and eternal. He says this may minister comfort to God's people, that God's love and mercy are infinite, immutable, and eternal. And a man with a wonderful name, Wolfgang Musculus. (laughs) Whenever I hear it, I want to legally change my name to Wolfgang Musculus. He said this. Well, we know Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, so... Sure, there you go. Not the same person. (laughs) Musculus said this, 
we do oftentimes perceive how inconstant and changeable any manner of good disposition of man's heart is. Whatever's good in us, it's so changeable. If you ask me the reason, what is the reason, Musculus? It may be answered that it is therefore unstable because it is not naturally grafted in us, but bred by occasion and changeable causes. It, the goodness in us is not in us, in and of ourselves, but it's, it's put upon us or brought about in us from other things, from changeable causes. So that when the cause ceases, the effect also ceases. When the cause of the good quality in us ceases, the effect ceases, the goodness leaves us. He says the like, the same, cannot be thought of the goodness of God. For God is good not upon occasion or upon causes given by any other thing, but naturally by his nature of himself. And therefore look how unchangeable he and his nature is, and so unchangeable in his goodness also. <coughs> Lastly, one more quote. Benedict Pictet. There is no changeableness in God, not in his essence, for being the first he cannot be superseded by any prior being, being all-powerful, he's explaining, explaining why God is not changeable. Being all-powerful, he cannot be injured by any. No one can overpower him to change him. Being most simple, he cannot be corrupted by none. You, you cannot add to God or subtract from him without him ceasing to be what he is. Being immense, he cannot be increased or lessened. Being eternal, he cannot fail. There is no change in his eternity, for where there is no succession, there is no mutation. Neither in his understanding, no change in his understanding, for the knowledge of God is all perfect. Nor in his will, for the will of God is all wise, to which nothing unforeseen can happen, so as to compel him to change his intentions for the better. Again, nothing can prevent and resist his will. He does indeed will the various changes of things, but his will itself remains unchangeable. And he takes all of this and he says... This immutability of God is the foundation of our faith and hope. You see, if this is not practical for reality, for everyday life, I don't know what is. When you're in the midst of affliction and discouragement and distress, stress and distress, you need a firm foundation. Why and how can you persevere in that difficulty? You can trust in God because he loves you with an unchangeable love. And when we begin to question how the difficult circumstances in which we find ourselves can be the product of God who is love, we must remember that this is the God who brings good out of evil. Look at the cross. What do you see there? You see wicked men murdering the only righteous man that ever lived. It is pure evil. It is all sin. And yet, through all of that wickedness, God brings about a perfect plan of goodness for his people. So also, when God permits evil and affliction in your life, there is a good purpose that he has in it for his own glory and for your own good. And you know that because God is unchangeably loving behind that affliction. And he is using it with a good purpose. Its purpose is never, its termination, its destination is never for you to suffer. It's always for a greater good for you. And if you fight against that, well, then you're fighting against God and his purposes. Our confidence, therefore, is not that the God who loves me will always make my life wonderful and will always make my life better and it will only increase in happiness. That's not what I'm trusting in. I'm trusting in the fact that 
life will not always get better, but rather when my life ends, it will be for all time, for all eternity, absolutely and perfectly amazing because I'll be with my infinite and eternal God. So my my confidence in this life is not that everything's going to go great, I'm going to have a happy and wonderful life. My confidence is, is that the Lord has told me what will happen to me when I die and that he will preserve me until that time. He will watch over me and he will take care of me until that day and I can go into the grave with confidence because my unchangeable God has given me the promise that my sins are forgiven and that I will be raised up on the last day. You see, if that's our perspective, if we set our affections on things above, heavenly things, then trials and afflictions here below on earth become means of teaching us to prepare ourselves for eternity, the place where we've stored up our treasure. We've stored up our treasure in heaven. And so everything that prepares me to get there becomes, in many ways, a good thing. Those afflictions become preparatory. They help me to prepare myself for heaven. I begin to love the world and the things of the world less, and I begin to love God and the things of God more, so that when I arrive in eternity and it's all God, it's the best thing ever, just what I've been waiting for. As opposed to thinking of heaven as something, as something better of the world that I love. No, it's all about God. This means we can persevere through the most difficult times. Because even if they come to the worst possible point, we know that our unchanging God who loves us will not fail to deliver us from eternal judgment and damnation. Think about the martyrs of the church. Did God love the martyrs who were murdered for their faith? Of course he did. Because their deaths were actually a deliverance. Their deaths are an entrance into glory and a ceasing of their suffering here on earth. And so even if God's plan for you is martyrdom, it's not because he ceased to love you. It's because he's called you to be a testimony, a witness for him in a mighty and powerful way, but he will give you the grace to do that if he calls you to that. And when you die, in one way or another, he will bring you home to himself. You see, now we can go from the smallest of afflictions, my my pinky toe hurts. To the greatest of afflictions, I'm being martyred, and the same impassable love of God guides me through everything in between. When you go to bed and when you wake up, when you enter the hospital, when you come home, when you're born, when you die, from start to finish, any time and at all times, your God is the God who is love, who is mercy, who is kindness, who is justice, who is goodness, who is wisdom, who is holiness. He does not possess those things. He is those things. And so when you're in the need of a foundation upon which to persevere, recall this to mind and have hope, to use the language of lamentations. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. That's only true because God is simple, infinite, eternal, immutable, and impassable. Great is his faithfulness. So trust him. Trust him in your afflictions. He is the God of the valleys and the God of the hills. Both. He is Jehovah, the Lord, the one who changes not. I am that I am. He is love. Trust in his perfections and promises and persevere by his grace and in his power. In our Confession of Faith, this isn't in your outline, but in our Confession of Faith, the chapter on perseverance, it talks about the fact that God at times removes the sensible sight and light of his love from his people. Sometimes he causes us to 
to experience or feel his displeasure. Not because God has gotten angry with us, but because he's changing what we experience to chastise and teach us. Perhaps for our sin, perhaps for other reasons. And so, am I to think, oh no, I've made my God angry. No, he's not like that. Rather, he's causing me to experience, to have a different experience, to teach me something, to change me in some way. Just as when we discipline our children, we do not cease to love them, but they feel our displeasure as we discipline them. It's loving discipline. It's chastisement as opposed to condemnation. God does not condemn his children, but he does chastise and discipline them. And God does not cease to be loving when he does that. He simply causes us to experience and go through something different. We are changed. He is not. That was the first point, personal applications, impassibility and reality. You can take this, hide it in your heart, and live every single day of your life with it. Every day the mercies of the Lord are new for you, brother and sister in Christ. As Pictet said, this this immutability is the foundation of our hope and our joy. Let's look then at pastoral implications. How does this... What are the implications, what are the connections of this to the way that we preach the gospel and shepherd the flock of Christ? Think about this with me. Why do we preach the gospel? Why is the preaching of the gospel necessary? Well, we preach the gospel because the world is full of sinners in need of salvation. We ourselves, prior to God's grace acting upon us, were just were a part of that. We were children of wrath like the rest, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. The world is sinful, full of sinners, in need of salvation. That's why we preach the gospel. An important part of the gospel message is to declare that it is sinful that mankind in Adam and in our own lives has disobeyed God's laws and we are condemned for our sin to eternal death. Now we have to combine with that message of man's sinfulness and God's condemnation upon sin. We have to combine with that or back it up with the truth that God is immutably and perfectly just. So that when we tell someone that they are a sinner, it means that they have a serious problem between them and God. A very serious problem. Because they have sinned against a God who is invincibly just and will not fail to punish the wicked. They have sinned against God Almighty and they must answer to His justice, the one who is justice in and of Himself. He does not subscribe to some system of justice that He's going to be faithful to. He is justice. He'll be faithful to Himself. But is God like a God of Greek mythology? Is He like a mob boss? A dictator that someone has annoyed and you have to pay Him off? Listen, you've made God angry. You, You need to do something about this. No, He's not like that. You can't pay Him off. You can't buy him off. You can't, you can't make him happy again by doing him a favor or something like that. He's not a Greek god. He's not a, a mafia uh, don. He's not a mob boss. And so when we tell someone that you have sinned against the invincibly and immutably just God, we're telling them without any doubt, without any deviation, God will punish the wicked. He will punish sinners. And we can call that wrath and anger because he will cause vengeance to be poured out upon them to the fullest extent of the infinity of his justice. We can tell them with all conviction and sobriety that so long as you remain a sinner, you have every assurance that at the final judgment you will be sent to everlasting judgment and torment, justly so, for your sins. 
If God is impassable, then he cannot be provoked or swayed or moved. And preaching the gospel with an impassable God behind the threat of judgment gives it all of its power and its force. And the same perfection of justice, brothers and sisters, the same perfection of justice in God that punishes wickedness also justifies righteousness. It also approves of the righteous. The same justice that says that's not just, where it sees justice will say that's just. It must say it's just. Sounds like Dr. Seuss. But you understand, the same, one perfection of justice will invincibly destroy and, and cause vengeance to be poured out upon the wicked, while at the same time, it, it must and will vindicate and declare the righteousness of those who conform to that justice. When you put butter in the sun and refried beans in the sun, two different things happen. The same heat melts one and hardens and causes the other to become crusty. Well, the same perfection of justice does two different things to two different kinds of objects. One it destroys and one it approves. And so we can preach the gospel not only with an impassable God behind the threat of vengeance and condemnation, but also assuring them that if, if you are righteous, God will approve you. God will approve you. He must approve you. What's the problem? (laughs) There is no one who is righteous. No, not one. Paul says in Romans 3, verses 19 to 20, Now whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul's saying that, We can't be righteous by obedience. And the reason is that we're sinful. If we weren't sinful, then we would be righteous by obedience, but no one is righteous because we're all sinful. And so the law would approve of us. It would justify us if we were righteous, but we're sinful, and so it condemns us justly so. If there were a righteous person, though, the law would approve them. The same law would take that person to court and say, innocent, Whereas for us, it would say, guilty. So if God is perfectly and invincibly and immutably and impassably just, he can't be swayed. And if we can't be righteous, if we can't do something about our condemnation, what is the solution to this problem? How do we escape from that condemnation? And you see, God's not going to change. His justice is not going to change. We have to be changed. But God doesn't change us to suddenly become righteous in and of ourselves. What does God do? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see, no one said said to God, God, please have mercy. God, please be kind. God, please do these things. God is goodness. He is mercy in and of himself. And God, of his own will, of his own freedom, sent his Son to die on the cross, to take on our flesh and to die on the cross for our sins. 
And so we have a just judge who in and of himself provided the way of escape for creatures, for sinful creatures like you and me. And he chose some to receive eternal life, leaving others in their trespasses and sins. And for all those who are elected to eternal life, the work of God the Son, Jesus Christ, is applied to them by the Holy Spirit. And his sufferings, Jesus' sufferings, erase their condemnation, and his obedience clothes them in robes of righteousness. And now, trusting in Jesus, having our sinful record expunged, removed by Jesus' sacrifice, and having a a perfect record of obedience given to us, attributed to us, from Jesus, by trusting in him, we are righteous. And what must God do now, according to the perfection of his justice? He must declare us righteous. That's why he sent his son in the first place. When we say God must do this, it's not as though in some grumbling manner God is forced to admit, okay, well, yes, you're just now. No, it was his will, it was his plan to bring us to himself all along. And so he receives us as a just judge who declares us righteous, and he receives us as a father who adopts us into his own family. And now the same perfection of justice that condemned the wicked declares us righteous in a way that no one can ever change that. And no one can ever undo our righteousness because no one can ever cause Jesus Christ to be unrighteous, and he is our righteousness. And no one can undo the justice of God that declares all of this to be so infinitely, eternally, and immutably. God cannot and will not punish the righteous because that would be a self-contradiction of his own character. God punished Jesus for our sins and by his stripes we are made whole, Isaiah 53 says. And this foundation allows us to approach the truly hopeless and helpless sinner condemned and awaiting eternal punishment and we can say to them, Without any doubt or deviation, if you go to God in and through Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You will be justified. You will be declared righteous by trusting in Jesus. This is what the scriptures tell us. Romans 10 verses 9 to 13. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. Why? Because they're going to a perfectly just God in and through a perfectly just Savior. God will. He has promised this. He will declare them righteous. He will forgive their sins. In some of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, John says in 1 John 5, to 13 and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and that this life is in his Son. Eternal life is in, in the Son given from God. He says, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Brothers and sisters in pastoral counseling, in fellowship one with another, we can say to each other, we can minister one to another to our hearts that no matter what afflictions God permits in our lives, no matter how sinful we are, God's love towards us in Jesus Christ does not and cannot and will not change because God doesn't have bad days. He doesn't have mood swings. He doesn't get annoyed. He doesn't change. He may cause me to feel various changes, to change me, but he himself is not changed. He does not cease to love me. 
the status of my justification in Jesus Christ is never called into question because without doubt or deviation, God will justify all those who trust in Jesus Christ. And so in light of these things, if God is chastising you, if he is permitting affliction in your, in your life, which is a guarantee will happen because he will sanctify his children, it is not because God has changed, it's because he's changing you. He does not have passions or affections, but perfections. And God's perfection of justice punishes the wicked and vindicates the righteous. And we, being righteous in and through Jesus Christ, are just. We are justified. And God's law and justice vindicate us. They declare us innocent and righteous. And that's the good news, brothers and sisters. That's the gospel. All who call on the Lord, on the name of the Lord, will be saved. No one who goes to him will be cast out or put to shame, the scriptures say. No one will go to him and find that on that day, God wasn't handing out forgiveness. Sorry, I ran out. No one will go to him and on that day, he wasn't in the mood to forgive. You can always go to the Lord. You can always preach the gospel message knowing that the one who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No one will go to him and be put to shame. To go to him and be put to shame is to go to him and he doesn't give what he said he would. You know, like we said the other day, if you buy something in a, from an infomercial, you think you're getting something good and it ends up being a piece of junk. And you're put to shame, you're disappointed, you're embarrassed because what you thought you were getting is not what you got. But when you go to, to God, he will always be far more. His love will always exceed what you thought or could even conceive. You will always find him better than you could have conceived him to be. And the reason that we can preach that gospel message with such certainty and such power is not just because the Holy Spirit is the one whose power is is operative and working on the hearts of men, but because we're preaching it with the power of an impassable God behind that message. That God will do this because he's promised it and it would be a violation of his character and being if he did not. At the root of all of this then is the truth that God does not change. And so in our trials and afflictions, we have to ask, what is God teaching me? How is he changing me? And, and am I fighting against that? Am I fighting against that? Do I think that I somehow have a right not to suffer? Do I somehow think that I have a right not to enter into affliction? Well, then you don't want to be a child of God, if that's the case. Because God will permit these things and use these things to sanctify his children. And if you don't want to participate in that discipline, you don't want to be a child of God. In fact, the Bible tells us that the fact that you're going through that discipline, that chastisement, proves to you that you are a child of God because all of his children are disciplined by him and chastised by him, the writer to the Hebrews tells us. So think about this with me. Having looked at impassibility in Scripture, humanity and deity and reality, If God has passions and affections, if God's love is an affection or a passion, how can we preach the gospel? How can we declare the certainty of God's judgment or the certainty of his salvation if God has emotions like we do or has states of being like we do or can be moved from one disposition to another like we are? What will root and ground and give a foundation to our statements about God. You see, there would have to be some higher grounding cause for trusting God's threats and promises other than his character and being if his character and being can be changed. 
If those things are changeable, you'd have to find something that can't be changed behind that to back up his threats and promises, in which case God would not be God. The impassibility of God drawn from the scriptures profoundly impacts our preaching of the law and the gospel. God will punish the wicked. God will vindicate the righteous. We are wicked, but Christ was righteous, and therefore God will justify all those who trust in Jesus Christ, and there's no doubt, no deviation in these statements. God is simple, infinite, eternal, immutable, and impassable. And we preach the impassable wrath of God and the impassable love of God, finding that when we are changed by God and when we trust in Christ for salvation, that wrathful, perfect justice is satisfied and the same loving justice declares us righteous in Jesus Christ. And we can take that promise, brothers and sisters, all the way to the grave because it is a promise from an immutable and impassable God. The gospel will never be sweeter to you than the day that you close your eyes forever. What a wonderful comfort and hope we have. I, the Lord, change not. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Well, brothers and sisters, we've covered impassibility in Scripture. We've covered impassibility in humanity, impassibility and deity, impassibility and reality. And at the beginning of last night's first lecture, I said that our goal in this study of divine impassibility is not merely to increase our knowledge. It's not just to get more facts in our minds. It's not just to increase the things that we know, but to have a better understanding of our God so that we might worship him with greater reverence and awe and so that we might serve him with greater reverence and awe. And I hope and trust that that prayer has been answered and that you too have found this study to be very practical, very personal, and very applicable for our good and for God's glory. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you that your promises and your threats come to us with unchangeability, with immutability, with impassibility. And we thank you that you have rescued us from invincible justice by aligning us with that justice in Jesus Christ, by making us righteous, declaring us righteous in him. How we thank you that our salvation is in Jesus Christ and that you sent Jesus Christ to be that savior. How we thank you that in and of ourselves we are only sinful, only wicked, only unrighteous. But in Jesus Christ we are perfectly righteous. We thank you that our sinful record has been, has been covered, has been taken away, has been forgiven, and that we have been granted, we have had imputed to us, attributed to us a perfect record of obedience in the life and the death of Jesus. Our Father in heaven, we are overflowing with thankfulness. We are overflowing with reverence and awe, with praise for you and your mighty and infinite perfections. And we ask that we would continue to grow in our understanding of these things, that it might continue to impact us in our everyday lives as we go through trials and tribulations and afflictions, cause us to persevere with trust and to trust in that perseverance. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would please help us, weak and changing creatures, to sanctify our affections, to love you above all with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to know right and wrong based on your will, to act accordingly, to find our love and our joy and our hope and our confidence in you and in you alone. 
May we set our affections on things above. May we love you above all others. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would work out your will in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.